the book of Revelation from which Steve and I have been preaching now for four weeks with one more to go, unveils, that's literally what apocalyptos means, it, it's an unveiling, it unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged, the cosmic conflict between God and his Christ on the one hand and Satan and his evil allies, both demonic and human, on the other. By revealing the spiritual realities lying behind the church's trials and temptations during the time between Christ's first and second comings, and by emphatically affirming the certainty of Christ's triumph in a new heaven and earth, the visions here in this book both warn the church and strengthen her to endure suffering and to stay pure from the defiling enticements of the prevailing cultures of the world, symbolically a city called Babylon. Revelation is addressed to first century churches in seven cities in the Roman province of Asia, now Western Turkey, as representative of all Christ's churches in all times and in all places. Seduced and threatened by false teaching, by persecution, by the allure of material affluence, by cultural compromise and immorality, and by spiritual complacency. I see these same things continuing and growing and intensifying in our day, and I do believe we are facing a time in our own country in the not-too-distant future when being a Christian, believing God's holy word, and uncompromisingly ordering our lives by its precepts will come at an increasingly high social, cultural, and eventually professional cost. This is a great book if you want to be a little depressed um, by a guy named Rod Dreher, who I was fortunate enough to have lunch with last week called Live Not By Lies, in which he, he talks, he interviews hundreds of survivors of Soviet communism and how they got there and the, the parallels, the, the, the parallels that they're seeing in our own country. For example, um, we have given big data more access to our lives than we ever would have allowed the government to have. In Siri, in uh, Alexa, in um, the way that we are online. So it's a little bit daunting when you think about it. I um, am part of a I was, have been part of a working group uh, that is making some pastoral recommendations in our diocese um, about a culturally relevant and essential pastoral issue, trying to come at it from a genuinely loving and truthful biblical perspective. And one of the members of this team is a youngish female lawyer, probably the smartest person by far on the team. And when we started to write the final draft of this, she asked that she be kept completely, her name be kept completely off of the, off of the pages, off of the document, because 
Her husband is a professor at a very prestigious law school. And if she got connected with this because of the cultural environment at the school, she feared serious repercussions from his colleagues and or possibly firing from the school. It's not a particularly controversial document. So I believe revelation is relevant and becoming more relevant for us today, living more and more, it seems, as exiles in Babylon. One of the most important things to know about the literary form of, of revelation is its extensive use of symbolism. Jesus, symbolized as the lamb, revealed this book to John to fortify his church to resist the strategies of Satan, symbolized as a dragon with 10 heads and 10 horns, whether in the form of intimidation and violence, symbolized as the beast, deceptive culture embracing heresy, symbolized as the false prophet, or beguiling material affluence, symbolized as the prostitute. The general narrative arc, as John himself says, is from the things that are to the things that are to take place after this, which isn't all that precise. <laughs> Though I grew up in a church that worked super hard to interpret it very precisely. For an example, as an example, the ten horns of the dragon was definitely the European Union <laughs> until like Spinal Tap, they went to 11. And if you're curious now as to how many countries are there, it's 27. So that one, I guess, is off the blocks now. Anyway, the narrative arc is from the things that are to the things that are to take place after this, climaxing with the destruction of the enemies of God and his church and the exuberant presentation of the church as the Lamb's bride in a new heaven and new earth. Then we party. We join the great feast of eternity, the marriage supper of the Lamb. By the way, have you ever thought about how much eating factors into redemptive history? Take and eat, for example, is the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve. They eventually took and ate something that they were forbidden from. Then, in John 6... Jesus says explicitly that take and eat is the solution to that. And finally, when we join Christ in heaven, take and eat is the final thing. A feature of Revelation that can make it really challenging to read casually is that parts of John's vision kind of double back to present complementary perspectives on the same events, a little like Genesis 1 and 2 does with creation. Also, earlier visions sometimes portray later events and later visions portray earlier situations, almost like prequels. We, it, it's not until we get to chapter 12 that we actually get the Christmas story from the perspective of heaven. And if you want to read something chilling, how heaven saw the birth of Christ. Read chapter 12 of Revelation. Add to that the order in which John received visions doesn't always coincide with the chronology of the events 
that they symbolize. In other words, it's a complex book. But one distinct thread of reality is woven throughout. The threat against God's people is real, but the battle is the Lord's. And guess what? He wins. God saves. God is central and God is supreme. And that's what I want to give focus to today because that's the supreme thing and what will sustain the church in tribulation. I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard the one about the airline pilot who comes on the PA about two hours into a flight and says, well, folks, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is we're lost. The good news is we're making great time. <laughs> it doesn't matter what great time you're making if the supreme thing, the destination in this case, isn't the supreme thing. You're still lost. This is a little like something St. Augustine wrote in the fifth century in the city of God where he called the, the proper The proper ordering of our loves, I'm sorry, I lost my place there just for a second. The proper ordering of our loves, what he called ordo amoris, the brief and true definition of virtue. According to this order, we must love everything in creation, only according to its proper relationship to God, which means loving God above all as supreme and not inordinately or out of order, loving anything else. Listen, there are tons of good and proper loves in life. God does not want us to love him exclusively, but he does want us to love him supremely. And if we get that order wrong, it doesn't matter if we're quote unquote making great time, we're still lost. And in this passage, John is writing to these seven churches that are besieged by the enticements and evil of the Roman Empire to remind them and us of this, everything, even the good things in life, must be measured or loved in relationship to God's supremacy. In chapter 9, 19 verses uh, 1 through 10 is a vision of the supremacy of God. If you've got your Bible or a device, we're, we're going to be looking at that reading from, from uh, Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, he, he is a God of salvation and glory and power. Verse 2, a God whose judgments are true and just. Verse 3, a God who vindicates his servants and avenges their blood. Verse 5, a God of small people and great people. Verse 6, an almighty God who reigns sovereignly, who reigns sovereign and absolute over all things. And in verse 7, a God who arranged from all eternity for the marriage of his son Jesus to his bride, the church, an innumerable host of saved sinners purified and beautified by his own blood. 
he's writing to these churches to proclaim the supremacy, the supremacy of God in all of life, to declare the truth that the neglect of God under the guise of openness and neutrality and compromise and tolerance, and trust me, these were issues in the first century too, is in fact a rejection of God's purpose to be loved and trusted and enjoyed and followed and glorified in everything his creatures do. An angel had been communicating to John on the island of Patmos where he'd been exiled because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, as he says in chapter 1, verse 9. All of chapters 17 and 18, maybe the most difficult chapters in the book, are John's vision of God's destruction of Babylon, which I believe stands for the final climactic expression of rebellious civilization. Babylon is the end-time center of human power and glory and wealth. The, the angel calls Babylon the great prostitute. Chapter 17 begins in verses 1 and 2 with, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And at the end of chapter, at the end of the chapter, verse 18, the angel says, The woman that you saw is the great city which has dominated the kings of the earth. She dominates them because they of the lust that they have for her wealth and power and glory and everything human that a city puts, pulls together, instead of offering it up to God in thanks and praise, she prostitutes to commercial gain and gives herself to the lusts of the nations. And in the process, she attacks God's people. Chapter 18, verse 24, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on earth. And this is serious stuff. It's different when I'm preaching it than when I wrote it. <laughs> The horrendous downfall of this godless city and civilization at the end of the age is described in chapter 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And in verse 21, John sees an angel take up a stone like a giant millstone and throw it into the sea, saying, so shall Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more. Then... In chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, our passage today, John hears the worship service in heaven celebrating God's victory over Babylon. Verse 1, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And at the overwhelming revelation of what would, what would happen to Babylon and how heaven would celebrate, John is so stunned that he falls down in verse 10 and starts to worship the angel who'd come to him with this revelation. But the angel stops him and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's the goal of everything the angel's been revealing. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all God's judgments and all God's dealing with the world. All God's plan for history from beginning to end have this one goal. Worship God. Don't worship 
the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. Do you see the order that Augustine was talking about? The lowercase o orthodox church of which Redeemer is a part is, I believe, increasingly in exile and an exile outpost in Babylon. And we exist in Babylon to testify to God's rightful place wherever it has been disordered. And by the way, this is not a reason for fear. I'm not, I'm not trying to stir up anxiety and fear. The most, the most often repeated c command in the Bible is do not be afraid. But it is important that we know that all the people of God exiled in Babylon are empowered with the spirit of prophecy. It says in Acts 2, 17 and 18, which is a passage we will read again on Pentecost. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And it says in chapter 19, verse 10 here, that the spirit of prophesy, prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And that means Lord over every area of life, even in Babylon. But as an exile outpost in Babylon, we know what's coming. And we know what the worship of heaven is going to be like when Babylon is no more. And God stands forth to vindicate his son. And we know from verse 10 that the reason this has all been revealed to us ahead of time is that we might worship God. God invited John to see and hear the celebration of heaven so that in his exile and suffering, he might join in and worship God. And John recorded it in a book so that we might see and hear the worship of heaven and join in. The outposts of the kingdom of God in Babylon are meant not only to testify God's rightful place in all the areas of life, but also to be a powerful witness of worship, drawing down into the darkness of Babylon with the light and glory and joy and power of God's final triumph over evil. My hope is that our gathered worship at Redeemer would be the declaration, even in the midst of Babylon, that we will not be drawn into her deceptions because we've found in God the satisfaction of our souls. We've experienced that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Gathered worship is the public proclamation of the gospel and the savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. In short, his supremacy. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all, as it says in Ephesians 6.12, all flesh and blood and rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. And we will not surrender our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to her ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome, and I mean that in the literal sense, awesome, 
truth, that we are free from that which will not endure. Worship isn't the simple performance of a routine of liturgy and hymns and prayers and preaching and eating and drinking. You can do all of that with an entirely rote heart. No. When the angel said to John, who'd fallen at his feet, don't do that to me, worship God, he didn't mean recite a creed or sing a hymn or listen to a sermon, all of which are both good and necessary. He meant meet with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the music. Pursue God, not facts about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing God, seek to stir up your feelings to love him and honor him and admire him and fear him and enjoy him and even savor him. My deepest hope is that gathered worship at Redeemer is the blatant public savoring of God in the midst of a very seductive Babylonian culture. The flagrant, open enjoyment of God as the fountain of life. And therefore, the public declaration that God is more to be desired than all of the temporal pleasures of Babylon. But for us to worship God in this, the way the congregation of heaven worshiped, we must see God the way they saw him. So I want to close by focusing our minds very briefly on three things that they saw. In Revelation 19.1, they cry out, Hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word for praise God. Alleluia, which we often say is Latin for the same thing. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Three things, salvation and glory and power. Where do they see them? First, they see them in the judgment on Babylon and the avenging of the servants of God. In verse 2, his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Heaven worships God for his truth and justice revealed in the final judgment on Babylon. And not only that, it says in verse 3 that heaven worships God because his judgments are eternal. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, evil and rebellion against God will never escape to arise again to torment Christ's bride. The second thing that moves heaven to worship God is the revelation of his absolute sovereignty as ruler over all things. We looked at this just a few weeks ago. Then I heard what seemed, it says in verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is Lord. He is God. He is Almighty and therefore he reigns. This is the bedrock for worship in the midst of Babylon. How does a little band of believers, a little exile outpost of faith, keep on singing the praises of God with hope and confidence and joy in the midst of Babylon? The answer is that we know God reigns over Babylon. This is what heaven saw, and it brought a thunderous hallelujah from this immense congregation and this is what I think will keep us singing with all our might 
right in the midst of Babylon. Even when the cost is high, God reigns over every power in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And if you want to see an emotionally overwhelming example of this in real time, get on YouTube and type in Ukraine and he will hold me fast. It's a little house church during the siege of Kiev singing this song together in, in their worship. You'll never, you never ever will sing that song the same way again. But they do believe that God is sovereign. And finally, the third thing that moves heaven to worship is the sight of the marriage of God's son. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. All, all of redemptive history for thousands of years has had a telos. It's been aiming at this one thing, the consummation of the son of God and the people of God, his bride in glory forever and forever. Hallelujah. Amen.